may be seated. Our scripture lesson this morning is from Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. I'll give you a minute to find that um, either in your Bible or your device, whatever, or if you don't have a Bible or a device with you, feel free to use one of the red Bibles in the pew in front of you. Myself, I kind of like to feel the pages between my fingers. Makes me feel closer to God, I guess. Okay, from Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God and Father, as we come to your word, seek to apply it to our hearts. I pray that we might... Um, Just hear your truth spoken to us as our loving Father, through Jesus Christ, and applied by the Holy Spirit to our hearts. Be with all of us sinners as we wrestle with your word. Be with me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim it. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So, before we dive into our text for this morning, rather than a normal introduction, I want to take just a minute and get us kind of reoriented, because we've been preaching through the book of Romans since the beginning of the year, and we've been here for a while, and we'll be here for a while longer, but I know that between Lent and Easter and our other sermon series then, and me being on vacation, and at General Assembly, and the wonderful folks we had preaching, but not from Romans and stuff. I just feel like it's a little scattered. My brain was a little scattered as I came back to sit down and dive back into Romans, and I assume that some of you guys maybe feel that way a little. So um, what I did in the bulletin is I stuck a outline of the entire book of Romans in there. And you can keep that if you'd like it. Some people love this kind of thing, and some people can just throw it away, and I won't be insulted by that either. But I stuck that in there just to kind of reorient us to where we are. So the whole book of Romans, we said back at the beginning, back in January, is Paul trying to explain the gospel, right? The good news of what God has done in Jesus. But as he explains it, he kind of moves through these couple of themes. You can see them here. The gospel saves us by faith. The gospel gives us hope. The gospel fulfills God's promises. The gospel makes us one. And I show you that in part just to get us reoriented in general, and in part because there's this shift that's been happening. It really started happening two weeks ago when, I, when we preached on 5, 1, and 2. But the first four chapters of Romans has been Paul kind of making this one argument, all right? Um, so he starts off by saying that we're all sinners. Everybody is, right? Chapter 1, he says, even if you're not religious, even if you're not a Christian, you are a sinner, And then in chapter 2, he says, even if you are religious, even if you are a Christian, you're still a sinner. Um, We're all sinners, and so we can't trust in our good works. That's what chapter 3 ultimately leads to. We can't trust in something in us, in something we do to fix ourselves or to make us right with God. Instead, we have to rely on what God does in Jesus and put our faith, 
our trust in that. And then in chapter 4, he takes that idea of faith and he kind of unrolls it and he uses the example of Abraham to try to reinforce that and illustrate that and teach us about what that actually looks like then, having that faith in Jesus. And that's really this one thing that Paul's explaining. And now, in chapters 5 through 8, he's going to take that idea and he's going to answer this whole series of like, so what questions coming out of that, which is to say, if that's true, then these are all different things that we need to understand and do and benefits of it and answers to questions that we have from it. And I show you all of that um, because now, as we move into Romans 5, we're starting to see him say in all different ways, so then this is what's going on. This is what it does for us. This is what faith in the gospel does. So last week, or two weeks ago, when I was here, in the first two verses, you'll remember, he talks about how it gives us peace with God through a life lived for God's glory. It gives us peace with God, which is great. And then, today, he follows it up with this statement, this kind of surprising statement. Look at verse 3. He says, not only so, not only does it give us peace with God, but we also glory in our sufferings. We also glory in our sufferings. If you're anything like me, as you're kind of reading through Romans 5, you're reading verses 1 and 2, and you're kind of nodding your head, and then you suddenly stop, and you're like, wait, what? (laughs) So in Paul's world, there was this idea, all right, this very common idea that you could look at somebody's outward circumstances and draw direct lines from that to where their heart was at to how they were doing with God. That if you were righteous, then you would be well off and have an easy life. And if you weren't righteous, if you were poor or things were hard for you, then that must be an indicator that somehow there was something wrong in your heart, that you must deserve it. That was how people thought in Paul's world, which, you know, good thing nobody thinks that way today. But um, (laughs) what Paul knows some of his readers are thinking as they read this is that they're thinking, okay, So what's going on then for me? Because I've done this. I've put my hope in God. I've trusted in him. I've I've become a Christian. I've done this stuff you've been thinking about. And it's not working so great. We're kind of social outcasts because of this new faith. We're persecuted because of the gospel. We've lost friends and family. So how is this not God telling us that we're on the wrong path? And so what Paul's trying to do is answer that issue and explain why his readers are wrong in how they view suffering. And he does that initially by shocking them with the words that we just said. He says, not only do I rejoice in God's glory and peace, I also rejoice in my suffering. So he says that, and then he starts to explain it. And I think that that's incredibly important for us to pay attention to, because just like Paul's readers, I think many of us can struggle with suffering. Some of us can struggle because we've bought into the same idea that we said Paul's hearers had, that suffering is a sign of God's displeasure. But even if we don't believe that, we're still going to wrestle with suffering because it's hard and because we have to kind of wrestle with what it's for. So I want us to just walk through this text this morning, these three verses, and try to understand what Paul is saying about this suffering that we all face, what he's telling us about how we can face it. And first... Let's not leave behind the basic idea, even though we've already alluded to it. The first thing Paul says is just that suffering is a reality. For everybody, for Christians and non-Christians, for good people and for bad people, suffering is a reality of life. I don't know if you've realized this, but the Apostle Paul's life was hard. 
It was real hard. I, I, I read this a long time ago, I remember, when we were preaching through Colossians. But just listen to how, when he's writing to this church in Corinth, Paul describes what life is like for him as a Christian minister. From 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I've worked harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged, which is beaten with whips, more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. It is not what I would call an easy life. And as we see Paul describes that, it really should remind us that there's two levels we're talking about when we talk about the reality of our suffering. First, Scripture and Paul right there reminds us that faithfulness will bring suffering. Faithfulness is going to bring suffering. The context of a lot of those things that Paul just listed is his ministry, right? And we often get this idea that we can test whether or not we're being faithful by how our lives are doing, by how things are going. We think that if we're being faithful, our spiritual habits are flourishing and our ministries are bearing fruit and we feel like, okay, that's a good sign. Things are going good. But if things are going badly and our spiritual lives are struggling and our ministry feels fruitless, then we must be doing something wrong. That's how we feel. But that's not how the Bible tends to view faithfulness. This is how Jesus, this is the view Jesus takes. He says in John 15, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So this is Jesus, God in the flesh, perfect righteousness, perfect faithfulness. And the products of his faithfulness are that the crowds that initially gather then desert him and his disciples all abandon him and one of, him betrays, one of them betrays him and he ends up being executed. And then he says, a servant is not greater than his master. If that's how I was treated, you shouldn't expect better. So faithfulness will bring suffering. And it's not just that. Scripture also teaches that life itself will bring suffering. That it's not just persecution and things. If you look back at that list from, first, from 2 Corinthians 11, a lot of that suffering is from Paul's ministry, but not all of it. There's things like hunger and thirst that are just the result of life being hard. I mean, he talks about being shipwrecked, right? And it's not like the ocean is persecuting him. Or if you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is really this long exploration of the hardness and futility of life. And in chapter 1, this is how it summarizes some of what it's going to say. Solomon says, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. So it's not just that we're suffering for our faith. Paul's also talking about suffering in general. 
Suffering of all sorts is just a reality in this broken world. And that's good news. I don't know if you realize that. Not, of course, that the suffering itself is a cheerful thing, right? Not that we like it. But that means that you, even if you're in the midst of suffering, you, even if you are heavy with grief, you, even if you're struggling and feeling like nothing is the way it should be, you are not the exception. You're experiencing something that is normal for all of us, even if it's maybe a little sharper than many of us are experiencing right now. And I don't say that to cheapen the suffering that you're feeling, all right? It may be brutal, and for some of you, I don't even think I can imagine what you've been experiencing, but I do find hope because that tells us an essential truth. It tells me an essential truth, all right? Which is that your suffering is not a measure of your lack of faithfulness or God's lack of favor. Your suffering is not a measure of your lack of faithfulness or God's lack of favor. One of the things that happens to us, I think, when we suffer is, I mean, it happens to me. I can't help but ask the question, why? Why is this happening? And some of us, when we ask that question, we feel like the answer must be in ourselves, that the suffering must be the result of something that we've done. And look, for a moment, it's appropriate to ask that question, I guess, which is maybe not, I mean, there, there are times that suffering is something that we cause ourselves, and we do need to reflect on that, right? When the police are coming to arrest you because of the crimes that you've committed, you can't look to the heavens and ask God why this is happening. But that, you, you ask that question, you reflect on that for a minute, and then you turn back and say, okay, but then it's not, right? Because often it isn't because of that at all. There's this moment in the Gospel of John where John tells this story about Jesus and his disciples. They come on this guy, and he's begging. He was born blind, and he's unable to see. And the disciples ask Jesus this question. It says, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Right? They want to know whose fault is it? They're making this assumption that this must be somebody's fault. And Jesus responds, neither this man nor his parents sinned said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. He's saying this wasn't his fault or his parents or anyone's. There's something else going on here. So while there's an appropriate, brief self-examination that suffering might bring, the normal thing we should then do is recognize that no, this isn't somehow our fault. It's something else that's going on here. And then the other thing that many of us can wrestle with, the deeper thing when we suffer, is does God really love us? We have to ask ourselves that. And we're actually going to come back to that question of God's love and favor in a minute because it really is this central question, I think. But for now, just hear this at the start. Suffering cannot mean God doesn't love you because suffering is the part, is part of lives of people like Paul and Jesus, right? We're going to come back to God's love in a minute, but hear that even at the beginning. Suffering cannot be a reflection of God's love for you because people like Jesus suffered immensely in their lives and were dearly loved by God. All right? And like we said, we'll come back to that. So suffering is a reality for all of us. And that means that it isn't evidence that we somehow deserve it or that God somehow is against us. 
So that's the beginning, but remember, Paul says something more striking than just that suffering happens and we have to learn to resign ourselves to it. He's saying, I glory in my suffering. He's actually arguing that there's something good that can be found in suffering. So look back at the rest of verse 3 with me. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. So stop for a minute before I explain this, all right? I, I'm going to say this a bunch of times in different ways in the sermon, all right? But, but I know what some of us are thinking in that moment. So before we explain it, we need to be very clear. Nothing about what we're about to say makes suffering itself all right, okay? Suffering is evil. When Paul says that he glories in his sufferings, the best way to translate that is in the midst of his sufferings, all right? So he's not glorying in the fact that suffering is great. Because if he did, he'd say we glory in our sufferings because suffering is swell. And that's not the way that this verse proceeds, okay? But Paul does tell us that there's something good that can be found in or come from suffering. He tells us that suffering is an opportunity for beauty. An opportunity for beauty. So what we need to understand is the process that God can work through this terrible thing we call suffering. Look back at the text. This is the process Paul describes. He says, we glory in our sufferings because, first, because suffering produces perseverance. That word perseverance means steadfastness. It means faithfulness and patience. Paul's saying that suffering grows us stronger in our commitments and particularly our commitment to God. Now here's the thing about that statement. I think a lot of us mishear it. When Paul describes this process, remember, he's describing something that builds on the stuff in chapters 1 through 4. He's describing this process that results from God working in us through Jesus. He's not saying this in the natural sense. I think a lot of us can hear this, that suffering creates perseverance, and we read it as just sort of like tough stuff gives you grit, right? That it's sort of like suffering is resistance training for life or something like that. And that's not what Paul's saying, because without the work of God and the Spirit— This is not the result of suffering. In fact, the result of suffering in those cases is the opposite. John Calvin, the great old theologian, when he's commenting on this text, he says, this perseverance is not the natural effect of tribulation, of suffering, for we see that a great portion of mankind are by their suffering made to murmur against God and even to curse his name. So he's saying, you know, this isn't the natural effect because that can happen too, but he says that when that inward meekness which is infused by the Spirit of God, and the consolation, the comfort, that's conveyed by the same Spirit, succeed in the place of our stubbornness, then tribulation becomes the means of generating perseverance. So he's saying that God can work through suffering to create perseverance and steadfastness in us. Paul's saying that as we struggle, God uses that struggle in us as his children to work that good thing. Again, not that suffering's good with it. This is something that God starts to work. And he goes on then with the next step. If you look back at Romans 5, he says, suffering produces perseverance, and then perseverance produces character. And that word translated character there is really interesting. The word in Greek actually means testedness or provenness. Suffering in scripture is sometimes pictured as a testing of our faith. But again, stop, because we almost always have the wrong idea about what that means, too, all right? When we read in Scripture about our faith being tested, 
I think we often have this dangerous image. We think that what it's saying is that life is like a school and God is like the teacher and we are like the students and he's giving us a test because the point of suffering is that God wants to see who can like pass the faithfulness test and who's going to fail. And that is not what testing means in scripture. I mean, no offense, guys, but God knows. God knows whether you're faithful or not, right? He doesn't need to, like, do science experiments in the world to try to figure out who really believes in him and who doesn't. God knows in any given situation how you'll respond because he knows everything. Instead, the testing of our faith is actually about us. It is a testedness being given to us. And here's the best way that I know how to picture that, all right? So, I, like I think many of you, have had friends or family members go into the military. Some of you have had this experience, right? And at the beginning of that, they go off to boot camp, right, to basic training. And um, they go away for like two months, you know, this 18-year-old goes off to that, and he comes back, and he seems really different, right? Like something seems to have fundamentally changed about them just from those two months. And part of it, sure, is that they've changed physically because they've gotten stronger and gone through, you know, these like disciplined regimens. But it feels like something inwardly kind of changed about them too. And when you talk to people who have come out of that, I've tried to like get, put my, you know, ask questions and try to put my finger on what it is that changed about them. Usually, I think when you pry a little, they say something like this. They say, look, I just went through the most difficult thing in my life. Every day I was tested, and I didn't think that I could do it, and didn't think that I could survive. But I did it, and I made it through, and because I've been tested like that, it's changed me somehow as a person. I think that Paul is talking about something like that when he talks about the testedness that suffering brings. It's easy to claim faith when things are easy. But faith in those easy times is only going to be an inch deep. That's all the deeper we can see because that's all the deeper that we've really known. Right? But suffering strips back the clutter and digs down deep and it shakes us and it batters us. And as our faith endures that, and as the Holy Spirit supports us through that, and as Jesus meets us in the middle of that, I mean, in a sense, that isn't doing something new, right? That faith was already there, and the Holy Spirit was already there, and Jesus was already there. But by being tested, we are actually changed because we have had an experience of them that is deeper than the experience that we could have had without those struggles. Which again, doesn't mean that the suffering itself isn't hard. I'm going to keep saying that. But it does start to give us some hope which is the end of the chain that Paul offers. If you look back at Romans 5 once more, he says character produces hope. This one is a little bit simpler if you followed what we said. As we are tested and refined by suffering, that strips away our illusions and smashes our idols and forces us to ask what kind of foundation can really support us. And that drives us to put our hope not in our stuff or in our plans, or in our strength, or in other people, but to place our hope in God. It reminds us what is truly important and what we can truly hope in. So what does that mean for us as we think about living and suffering? I spent a lot of time reflecting personally as I thought about this text, right? Um, Because this sermon is one that I've just, I don't know, I feel like it left me with a lot of stuff to process, And 
just reflecting personally, so I've not suffered nearly as much as some of you guys in life, but I have suffered some. And as much as I've hated it, there is something as I reflected and spent some time wrestling with my heart this week that I had to acknowledge, which is that, so by nature, I am a self-absorbed jerk, all right? And I know some of you are like, yep, and that's great, all right? Uh, but, but it was even worse when I was younger, right? Many of you guys recognize this about yourselves, I think. When I was like 20, right, I was really a self-absorbed jerk. And when I think about What's changed between then and now? I mean, maybe a little bit of it is just age and just experience. I think that's what we tend to kind of contribute it to. But honestly, I don't think that getting older has made me much less that way. It's just made me a little more tactful about hiding it. Um, when I think about the things that have really changed about my heart, though, that have really changed me, some part of that, um, the first set of things that actually changed me was things like marriage and having kids, which are wonderful, but are also a sort of normal suffering. And I know, don't, let me explain, let me explain, right? Marriage is great, but you marry somebody and you suddenly realize that like, you were really like comfortable and selfish and lazy. You know what I'm talking about? Like suddenly you're like, this other person needs my time and attention and I have to start sacrificing myself for them and I have to start dying to myself for them and I start bumping up against them in ways that expose the sins in my heart and then you have kids and it's like 10 times that right and you're like my goodness like I have to like give myself to these kids and I have to suddenly I'm sleep deprived and I'm tired and I'm struggling and um and kids you know they do that to you But that does change you, you know what I mean? That is a sort of suffering that changes you. And then the other set of things that have changed me, and honestly the biggest things that have worked on my heart to make me less of a selfish jerk, those things are the pieces of suffering that I've had in my life. Right? And I don't like to say that. I struggled with this text because I don't want to admit that to myself because some part of myself is still really frustrated with God about the things that I've experienced. But I know that those things have worked in my heart, to make me a less selfish person and a less self-reliant person, a more compassionate person, someone who relies less on his own strength and more on God. Only marginally, right? There's still that sinful part of me. But those are the things that the Lord has used to shape and mature me. All the most beautiful people I know, the people who are the most selfless and wise beyond their years, I can't think of any of them that have led easy lives. Which again, doesn't mean that they've suffered things that are good, right? That doesn't make suffering good. But it does mean that God has used suffering in their lives, and maybe a little bit in mine, to work good and beautiful things. So then the question we have to ask in the midst of our suffering is are we going to seek to let it do that? Or are we going to just let it make us bitter and hard? And I ask that question, and part of my heart trembles because I know how wounded some of you feel. I know I'm asking something that's scary and difficult. But I know because the Bible teaches it, and because I've seen it to be true, that at the end of the day, suffering is a reality that confronts us, and we only really have two options in the midst of it. We can either walk into that suffering as hard as it is and seek to find God in the middle of it, 
where we can huddle up at the edge of it and stay where we are. And the second option feels easier, but if we do it, then suffering is only going to diminish us. It's only going to shrink us. But as we meet with God in the midst of it and experience it and experience him, we do find the ability to begin to heal and grow. So suffering as we walk into it and as God works it through and in us, it's an, or through it in us, it's an opportunity for God to work beauty. But that's not enough because then that confronts us with maybe the deepest question of all because it confronts us with God. And that means that we have to wrestle with whether or not we're going to trust him, which is hard. And Paul knows this because he wrote verse 5. At the end of verse 4, he talks about our hope, but he anticipates this question, right? We say, but what are we hoping in? Are we just hoping in some pie in the sky? Are we just burying our heads in the sand? And so he replies in verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame. It doesn't put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Paul is saying is that as much as suffering is a reality, God's love is an even deeper reality. In fact, he's saying God's love is a guarantee. God's love is a guarantee. And here's why Paul needs to say that. When you're in the middle of hard stuff, I think that hard stuff has this tendency to just like grow and grow in your vision until it's all that you can see. Right? Your brain just keeps coming back to it, and your conversations feel like they just keep swerving back to it. And you lay in your bed, and it keeps swimming up in your thoughts at night, no matter how hard you try to stuff it down. And you think you've moved on, and then it sneaks up behind you and jumps out, and it's there again. Suffering tends to grow and fill everything that we see, and because of that, we can easily let it redefine how we view all of our lives. Right? So suffering can make us feel like we're alone. It can get so big that it makes, us impo- makes it impossible for us to see the other people that love us and care for us and want to draw near to us. Suffering can make us feel like we're failures no matter how much else is going right and succeeding in our lives because we keep seeing this one part of our lives that is failing. Suffering can make us feel like the universe is out to get us, like nothing is good, like there's no beauty or light left. And because of all of that, suffering can make us feel like God is out to get us, too. Like he doesn't love us. It's not that suffering makes us stop believing that God exists. Maybe it does that for a few people, but honestly, I've met more people that have started believing in God because of suffering than stopped. But what it does leave us wondering is, does God love me? Is he good? And does he love me? And as long as we are staring at our suffering, we're going to feel like the answer to that question is no. But Paul is inviting us to look at something else. If you look at verse 5 again, he says, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So Paul's doing something really important here, but it's something that I don't think that we always think about. So, so look at what he says. First he says, our hope doesn't put us to shame, doesn't put us to shame because of God's love, but this is key. He doesn't just leave it there and say, like, we can have hope because God sort of in the abstract feels loving towards us. 
I think that's often how we think about God's love. It's this sort of like abstract idea. We want a loving God the way we want like a benevolent government, right? Or like, you know, good police officers or something like that. But Paul isn't saying something vague like that. Instead, he says our hope is that God's love has been poured into our hearts. It's actually been poured into us. And that has happened through the Holy Spirit who God has actually given us. We often don't talk or think a lot about the Holy Spirit. Or when we do, we just kind of use it in one specific kind of narrow slice of life where we talk about the Holy Spirit in terms of like this experience, this emotional experience we have during like a time of worship or prayer, right? We really felt like the Spirit was present, we say, and we mean that like the sermon really spoke to us and the praise team really moved us and things. And that's not wrong because part of what the Spirit does is draw our hearts to worship God. Um, But in the Bible, the Holy Spirit... Actually, for those of you who aren't Christians, so the Holy Spirit is, is a person of God. We believe that the, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all these three persons that are together, God, and you can ask me about that later because we're not going to go off on that tangent this morning. But the Holy Spirit, um, one of the things that the Holy Spirit does, because he does a bunch of things, but one of them is to serve as a guarantee that God gives to us. Paul's going to develop this idea in Romans 8. And he does it in other places. And here's the idea from from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He puts it simply. He says, When you believed, you were marked in him, in Jesus, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. What Paul is saying is that we can hope in God's love Because God has actually given us a guarantee of it in the Holy Spirit. All of which sounds kind of metaphysical, right? So let me try to explain it like this. Um, Sometimes if you really love someone, like a spouse or, you know, or someone that you're interested in, um, sometimes we try to express that by saying over-the-top things like, I want to give you my heart, right? You have my heart, have you ever heard some, like, really love-sodden romantic, like me to my wife, you know what I mean, say something like that, right? I want to give myself to you. And what we're trying to say, essentially, is that we love this person so much, we want to prove our love so much, that we want to give this person part of ourselves as a tangible sign of our love. Part of the good news of the gospel is that God has done that. If you are in him, If you trust in Jesus, God actually takes part of himself and puts it inside of you. The Holy Spirit actually lives inside of you. God has given you, in a real sense, his heart in our hearts. And that's meant to be a guarantee to us of his love. That God doesn't just kind of feel loving about you in a general way, that he's just sort of theoretically on your side. He's given you himself, his spirit, as a way of saying that this is my promise, my guarantee to you of my love. And part of how we survive our suffering and part of how God uses it for beauty is that guarantee. It's clinging to God's love poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Like we said, suffering easily looms large, and it seems to block out everything else. But what we're called to do when we're in the middle of it 
is to prayerfully and desperately and with God's help seek to tear our eyes away from that looming monster of our suffering and to instead look at the Spirit and to recognize the truth of God's love poured into us. Because God does love you. No matter what's going on right now in your life, that God loves you and he has demonstrated that love. He demonstrated it by becoming one of us in Jesus, by coming down from his throne and becoming a human being. He demonstrates it at the cross, suffering with us and for us so that we might be brought through it. And God demonstrates it to us now as we trust in him through the Holy Spirit, that God has put himself in your heart as a seal of that love. And by looking at that, that actually gives us power that can begin to transform our suffering. It's the thing that can carry us through the tears and toward the beauty that lies on the other side. Friends, we're going to suffer. Some of us less and some of us more. I wish I could tell you a different sermon this morning, but this world is broken. It's full of sharp edges and none of us are going to make it through life without being cut and wounded. In the midst of that suffering, we can find hope and glory because of two realities. Because God loves us, he's worked love for us, given his spirit for us, that our suffering doesn't get to define our lives, but God's love defines them instead. And that because of that love, we can have hope that even the dark and sad things in our life can ultimately be worked into something beautiful. Even in the midst of such things, the God who loves us is at work, and he's working beauty and good. Would you pray with me? Father, man, I wrestle with these truths, and there is both a lightness and a heaviness in my heart. A heaviness because I know that there is so much sadness and darkness that so many of us have to confront, and a lightness because as as big as those things loom, your spirit is there and he does meet me and you are at work in me. I pray that you might just affirm that to me and to each of us, that we might hope in him and in you. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We have the